Sounds good. Right now, let's, go and, uh, let's look at God's word. We're going to be in Jeremiah chapter 25. Jeremiah 25 is our text this morning. We're going to look at verses 1 through 38. Jeremiah 25, 1 through 38. Yes, we can. The topic, Jeremiah pours out wine to represent the coming pouring out of the wrath of God against sin. The title of our message, Vintage Jeremiah. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, as we approach your word, I pray that we would do it humbly with open hearts and ears to hear what you have to say to your church. We thank you, we praise you, in Jesus' name, amen. You may think that tending bar is a profession a Christian should avoid, and ordinarily I'd say you're right. But in our text, God called upon Jeremiah to tend bar. He said to his prophet, this is from verse 15, take this wine cup of fury from my hand and cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. Then down in verse 27, not just drink it, he says, drink, be drunk, and vomit, which described my high school weekends. Uh, (laughs) Not happy about that, but I read that and I just, I, you know, Thankful to be delivered. High school, college, that was our rallying cry. Drink, be drunk, and vomit. And uh, sad to think that there was a time when I thought that that was, you know, really living. Uh, But anyway, cup of wine, it's a symbol of the wrath of God against sin that must eventually be poured out upon unrepentant sinners. Jesus picked up on the illustration of the cup when in the Garden of Gethsemane, just before he was to be crucified, he said to his father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, the cup of the wrath of God against sin. The amazing thing is that Jesus took the cup of God's wrath into his hands and he drank it down, we would say, to the very last drop. He drank that cup, and when he did, he drank it in the place of every believing sinner. What about all those who are not saved? Well, they must drink the cup for themselves, meaning that they will die in their sins and be lost forever. What we're going to see in chapter 25 is a people of God who ought to have been announcing to the surrounding nations that God was going to pour out upon them his wrath against sin. They didn't announce God's judgment, mostly because they were living in sin themselves. God found it necessary to discipline them using those surrounding nations. We are a people of God, the church. We ought to be announcing to everyone that the wrath of God is coming upon all those who have rejected Jesus Christ. As the people of God, we must see to it that we are not living in sin, or God will discipline us. Keeping with God's own illustration, I'll organize my thoughts around these two points. Number one, God took his cup from you. Are you sober? And number two, God gave his cup to you. Are you pouring? Let's take a look, first of all, at staying spiritually sober in verses one through 14. Listen for God's longing for his people in these opening words. Beginning in verse one, The word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, which was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, which Jeremiah the prophet spoke to all the people of Judah and to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, 
From the 13th year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, even to this day, this is the 23rd year in which the word of the Lord has come to me. And I have spoken to you, rising early and speaking, but you have not listened. And the Lord has sent to you all his servants, the prophets, rising early and sending them. You have not listened nor inclined your ear to hear. They said, repent now every one of his evil way and his evil doings and dwell in the land that the Lord has given to you and your fathers forever and ever. Do not go after other gods to serve them and worship them. Do not provoke me to anger with the works of your hands. I will not harm you. Yet you have not listened to me, says the Lord, that you might provoke me to anger with the works of your hands to your own hurt. God had been wooing his wayward people, warning them nearly three decades. He had sent prophets, some of them we know, like Jeremiah, Ezekiel, who was in Babylon at this time, uh, Habakkuk. But apparently there were a lot of unnamed prophets as well. He had sent droughts and famines and pestilences. Those were all signs to the children of Israel. God had promised them physical blessings in the land for obedience, but that he would punish them if they were disobedient, and the sign of their disobedience and his punishment and his discipline would be famine and drought and pestilence, and he had done all of that, prophets and all of these physical signs, and they continued in their idolatry. In fact, they got worse and worse and worse. It was time to bring on the final discipline the one that would turn their hearts back to the Lord. You parents know all about this kind of a thing. You probably have a use of force continuum in your home. There's the you know, initial warning, maybe the counting to three or 300, depending on your leniency. Then there's the go to your room or the timeout. And, and finally, those of you who uh, still obey the Bible and spank your children, There comes that moment when you look your child square in the face and say, all right, you've earned a spanking. I mean, that's that's it. That's the big, you bring out the big guns and and now you're at the, you know, you're at the end of your use of force continuum. Uh, And so God says, look, I've sent you prophets. I sent you droughts, uh, you know, and it was gracious for him to do that and famines and pestilence so that there could be no doubt what was going on And they just said, yeah, forget all of that. We like what we're doing. We still worship you. You've got Saturdays. You've got sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. We've got the rest under control. God says, I'm rolling out the big discipline. In verse eight, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not heard my words, behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, says the Lord, and Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and will bring them against this land, against its inhabitants, and against these nations all around. I will utterly destroy them and make them an astonishment, a hissing, and a perpetual desolations. Moreover, I will take from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the sound of the millstones and the light of the lamp. The Jews ought to have been evangelizing the Babylonians. Instead, God would use the Babylonians to discipline them. Instead of merely acting like Babylonians by accepting their wicked idolatry, the Jews would be exiled to Babylon and they would experience a massive overdose of the world. God's people are called upon in every generation to have an effect on the surrounding culture. Too often we surrender 
to the surrounding culture. When that happens, it is certainly within God's rights to use the surrounding culture against us. Verse 11, and this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. For the very first time, the exact length of this exile was given. Why 70 years? Well, later on, we'll read in 2 Chronicles 36, 21, it was to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths. As long as she lay desolate, she kept the Sabbath to fulfill 70 years, 70 lost years. Here's how this works. From the time of King Saul until the final Babylonian invasion was a period of about 490 to 500 years. Every seventh year during that period of time, the Jews were supposed to observe a sabbatic year in which they let their land lie fallow. They didn't plow it. They didn't plant crops. It was a Sabbath year to the Lord. They did not observe that Sabbath year for that 500-year period, meaning they didn't observe 70 Sabbath years. And so God, as he's designing this discipline that is going to bring them back into a full and complete relationship with him, he says, the length of your time out is going to be 70 years, and it's based on uh, the consequences of your own disobedience. Then it will come to pass, verse 12, when 70 years are completed, that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, says the Lord, and I will make it a perpetual desolation. Did I hear someone say it's unfair for God to use the king of Babylon as a tool? (laughs) Well, the Jews thought it was unfair because Babylon was more wicked than they were. And there's a sense in which you think, well, why would you use a wicked people to discipline Uh, you know, God's people, well, it's because judgment always has to begin in the house of the Lord. It's worse when God's people sin than when non-believers sin because non-believers don't know any better. And as it was, the Jews were acting like and believing like and behaving as if they were Babylonians. So God was simply letting them experience the consequences of their unbelief. You want to live like a Babylonian? You want to have all the Babylonian worldly customs? You want to be an idolater? How about you just go live by the Euphrates River and really experience what this is all about? Some of you have fallen into sin. Uh, you, 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 you hear... Ta- Talk about hitting rock bottom. Uh, and, and essentially, it's the same idea. It's like all of a sudden, you're surrounded by the consequences of your sin. What seemed like it was going to be glorious and fun at first and maybe was pleasurable for a season, now all of a sudden has uh, destroyed and devastated your life. And so God says, you want to live like a Babylonian? You might as well do it in Babylon and get the full force of it. And some people think, well, this is unfair to the Babylonians. God just raises up nations and uses them and then tosses them away. Not at all, because this provided a great opportunity for the Babylonians. If you're familiar with the book of Daniel, you know that in the middle of the book of Daniel, King Nebuchadnezzar gets saved. He comes to know the Lord through Daniel and through an interesting event in his life where he becomes a wild beast for about seven years. God humbling him for his pride. 
And he writes, one whole chapter in Daniel is a tract that he writes and sends out throughout all his kingdom and surrounding kingdoms talking about the God of the Bible. And so it wasn't unfair at all. It was a great opportunity. The Jews wouldn't witness to the Babylonians on their own. So God says, while you're here learning your lesson, I will use you in the way that I intended. And you can see the effect that a people can have on their surrounding culture. Now later, Nebuchadnezzar's successor would act foolishly and God would pour out his wrath against him and against Babylon as they fell to the Medo-Persian Empire. Now in light of the fact that there is a cup of the wrath of God coming that non-believers must drink for themselves and thereby become drunk, you might ask yourself, I've been delivered from this, so am I remaining sober? Am I remaining spiritually sober? Am I turning away from the things of the world or am I returning to them as if I'd never been delivered from them? Because that's what happened to the Jews. They'd been delivered from these things. They were the people of God and then they began to let in the surrounding culture. They were enamored of it. They were intrigued by it, little at a time until it overwhelmed them. Had this week got several things in my mind about these, this overwhelming of the Christian by sin. Because it always starts small. Gene and Kelly live out in the country. I'm a city boy, right? Born and raised. Uh, I never even knew what a septic tank was until I worked in Norco. And then I found out that no one moving from Orange County to Norco knew what a septic tank was either. And they were always horrified to find out that there was sewage floating in their backyard because they never pumped those things. But anyway, uh, so Gene and Kelly having trouble with their pump and so uh, they're, you know, they're well and with their pump. And so he's talking to the well guy and one of the things they said to try was to take off the gate valve and let the thing flush itself out and then start it all up again and see if the water was gonna run clear. Well, the tank is under pressure and so Gene calls me, he says, hey, I don't have a monkey wrench big enough. Uh, the thing won't move, the valve... I think hadn't been touched, you know. You ever try and, you know, here's this really neat clean out or valve and they, they never move, you know, because they've not, they haven't been lubricated in 38 years, you know, and stuff. So, so we finally, so this thing finally starts to move. Gene's actually standing on it, you know, to get it to move. And so now it starts to move and uh, we're off to the side because, you know, we realize it's under pressure and we, we don't want to get killed, you know, by this thing. Uh, and, and so, so it's coming. Then all of a sudden, nothing's happening. Then all of a sudden there's some, you know, we can see some fizz coming out of it. And then you turn it a little bit more and then some, some water starts to come out. And then it starts to spray a little bit more and a little bit more and still looks like water and, and it's just spraying. And then all of a sudden, without warning, you make that final micro turn and this thing shoots out into the next door neighbor's field about 35 feet and water is just coming, but it's no longer water. It's just, it looks like we struck oil because the pump is all full of silt and junk like that. And, um, and here's what happens to Christians. You're walking with the Lord, you're doing well, and then somehow you let down your guard, some temptation from the past or some new temptation, whatever it might be that the devil who's been up 24-7 ever since you've been a Christian designing this particular temptation for you. It comes and, and you're at a weak point, you're going through some other trials, there's some problems in your life, whatever it might be, and all of a sudden you think, I'm, I'm, going, to, I'm going to take a little tiny look, I'm going to open the door to that just a tiny bit. 
It's going to crack the door to see who's out there. Kind of like Gilda Radner in the old Saturday Night Live days. Remember? There'd be a knock on the door. Who is it? UNICEF. She knew it was the land shark. And once she opened that door, he would come in and gobble her down. But, so you open that door, and at first, it's just a, you know, nothing really happens. Then maybe there's a little bit of a spray. You get touched a little bit by sin. You almost get caught in your sin once, and you think, oh, I just, you know, you shut the door back up. And then you, you know, and each time you don't get caught or something horrible doesn't happen, you open it a little bit farther, and then you know what happens? All of a sudden, that door blows into your face, and you're covered in mire and muck and mud and all kinds of gross stuff, because that's what's waiting on the other side of that door. David was reminded this morning of those uh, commercials, the Terminex commercials, you know, where you knock, it's like cockroach at the door wants to come in. Yeah, see, you got some nice wood there. <laughs> Termite, you know, or whatever. You don't want to let that guy in, you know. You, you can tell there's something wrong, and, and then luckily the Terminex guy is, happens to be outside, you know, and luckily for us, Jesus is around to take care of these problems. But, so if, you, if you're in a situation right now where your door is cracked open a little bit, just shut that door, lock it, padlock it, put duct tape around it, concrete it over, just forget about those things because the enemy will come in like a flood, and there's nothing good about it. We're to be effective in the world, not be infected by the world but it's going to require vigilance and discipline and watchfulness over our spiritual lives we don't want to merely be better than the world we want to better the world by our very presence in it now the remaining verses lots of them but don't lose heart we're going to read them jeremiah was portrayed as a server of this cup of wine that was the wrath of god against sin it's going to cause us to ask am i pouring now, we could say he was a bartender. He was a sober bartender. Think of yourself as a sober bartender in that you are in the world, surrounded by it, pressured by it, but you don't need to surrender to it, and you never are going to drink from the cup of that wrath because Jesus has drank for you. So you want to have fun tomorrow with your friends, especially your Christian friends. Tell them you went to church and your pastor told you that it's okay to be a Christian bartender that that's a, a very important profession in the world today, that we need more Christian bartenders. And um, please don't leave them there because you'll find out one of them, okay, but uh, explain it to them. But anyway, now what does a bartender do? Well, essentially he or she pours. In keeping with the current illustration, we're to pour out the warning that God's long-suffering with sinners will one day end in his wrath against sin will come upon them. So verse 15, for thus says the Lord God of Israel to me, take this wine cup of fury from my hand and cause all the nations to whom I will send you to drink it. They will drink and stagger and go mad because of the sword that I will send among them. To whom I send you, wherever you are, think of it as your having been sent there by God with this knowledge of the gospel. Without it, men are lost and will perish. Verse 17, then I took the cup from the Lord's hand and made all the nations to drink to whom the Lord had sent me. Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, its kings and its princes, to make them a desolation, an astonishment, a hissing and a curse as it is this day. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, his servants, his princes and all his people, all the mixed multitude, all the kings of the land of Uz, all the kings of the land of the Philistines, namely Ashkelon, Gaza, Ekron and the remnant of Ashdod, Edom, Moab and the people of Ammon. All the kings of Tyre, all the kings of Sidon, the kings of the coastlands which are across the sea, 
Dedan, Tima, Booz, and all who are in the farthest corners. All the kings of Arabia and all the kings of the mixed multitude who dwell in the desert. All the kings of Zimri, all the kings of Elam, all the kings of the Medes. All the kings of the north, far and near, one with another. And all the kingdoms of the world, which are on the face of the earth, also the king of Shishak shall drink after them. Now, if you looked at a map, you'd see that this is a list put, uh, which puts the nations in a geographic order, starting with Judah and Jerusalem and working towards Shishak, which was how the Jews referred to Babylon. Did Jeremiah literally make such a journey and in each nation act out this drama of pouring out wine into a cup to symbolize the wrath of God to come upon unrepentant sinners? Well, obviously not. But that doesn't mean it was simply a spoken word. I think somehow, somewhere, he did act this out. These guys, Ezekiel and Jeremiah especially, they were dramatized prophets. They acted out their prophecies, whether he was going to the potter's house or wearing a linen sash or some of these other images, they acted this out. And so maybe he did it at his house, maybe he did it at the temple, maybe he did it when visiting heads of state would come to Jerusalem, I don't know. But it was really, it's essentially the first PowerPoint presentation because it is the word of God with power and it's really a pointed uh, word because he acts it out and you can see what is happening and get a feel for it. Verse 27, therefore you shall say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, drink, be drunk and vomit. Fall and rise no more because of the sword which I will send among you. And it shall be if they refuse to take the cup from your hand to drink, then you shall say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, you shall certainly drink. For behold, I begin to bring calamity on the city which is called by my name. And should you be utterly unpunished, you shall not be unpunished for I will call for a sword on all the inhabitants of the earth, says the Lord of hosts. So maybe in this drama, you know, as people would gather around Jeremiah, he would act like he was pouring out wine, but it was probably something gross because it's representing the wrath of God. And he'd say, here, drink this. And he'd say, no, I'm not drinking that. And he would say, oh, yes, you will. And then he would give this, we would say, punchline and let them know what this represented. Some smug, smart aleck might say, I just refuse to drink it, but that's not gonna be an option. The wrath of God against sin, it's a reality. Just look, he, he mentions here, you know, I, I punish my own people. That should be indication enough that I'm not gonna let unbelievers get away with sin in general. So if, if sin, you know, if, if a people who I have forgiven, my own chosen people, if I find it necessary to punish and discipline them, what do you think I'm going to do to non-repentant people, non-believers? And all we have to do from our vantage point is look back at history and see how severely God has dealt and in a sense is still dealing with the nation of Israel. And yet all of the nations who have had dealings with Israel, many of them have come and gone. The Bible doesn't give us all the kingdoms of the world, but Daniel and his prophecy says, well, there, you know, the Assyrians are gonna come against the northern kingdom and then the Babylonians are gonna take over for them. Then they're gonna fall to the Medes and the Persians and then the Greeks are gonna come and then the Romans are gonna come and looking beyond our own time, he says, it's gonna be a revived Roman empire. And so this, I think you're beginning to see is more than a prophecy about just Judah in the sixth century 
Jeremiah is mixing in some things about the final uh, world order as well. There is a future time of God's wrath being poured out upon all the world at once. You read about it in the last book of the Bible, the revelation of Jesus Christ, chapters 6 through 18, describe the seven years of the great tribulation. Uh, Starts off relatively mild and peaceful, then at about the midpoint, things start to be poured out upon the earth, terrible judgments, and they come faster and faster and faster until the second coming of Jesus Christ, by which time about four-fifths of the world's population has been destroyed, either by catastrophe or direct intervention of God or demonic attack. It's not a pretty time, to say the least. So we're looking at what's going to happen to Judah, but we're also looking at what's going to happen to the world. We are the people of God who understand this coming wrath of God against sin. No one has to be there. Nobody that you know that's a non-believer has to go through the great tribulation because God is calling out to all men everywhere and encouraging them to repent so that they could be resurrected if they die in Christ or raptured prior to any part of that great and terrible coming wrath of God. The closing verses of the chapter read like a tragic poem which summarize this future time of God's wrath. Verse 30, therefore prophesy against them these words and say to them, the Lord will roar from on high and utter his voice from his holy habitation. He will roar mightily against his fold. He will give a shout as those who tread the grapes against all the inhabitants of the earth. A noise will come to the ends of the earth for the Lord has a controversy with the nations. He will plead his case with all flesh. He will give those who are wicked to the sword, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, disaster shall go forth from nation to nation and a great whirlwind shall be raised up from the farthest parts of the earth. And at that day, the slain of the Lord shall be from one end of the earth, even to the other end of the earth. They shall not be lamented or gathered or buried. They shall become refuse on the ground. Wail, shepherds, and cry. Roll about in the ashes, you leaders of the flock, for the days of your slaughter and your dispersions are fulfilled. You shall fall like a precious vessel, and the shepherds will have no way to flee, nor the leaders of the flock to escape. A voice of the cry of the shepherds and a wailing of the leaders to the flock will be heard, for the Lord has plundered their pasture, and the peaceful dwellings are cut down because of the fierce anger of the Lord. He has left his lair like the lion, for their land is desolate because of the fierceness of the oppressor and because of his fierce anger. History is rushing towards this pouring out of the cup of God's wrath against sin upon unrepentant sinners. And in doing so, during that seven-year tribulation, God is still doing it to call people to salvation so that they might know his son, Jesus Christ, and eternal life. Meantime, before we get to that, God's wrath is on sinners all the time in the sense that if they die in their sins, they will perish. Jesus has taken the cup full of the wrath of God and drained it for them. Whosoever believes in him is free from the wrath of God. That freed person, that saved sinner, ought to remain sober to tell others about the coming wrath and the conquering Savior. I can always find something, you can always find something to do rather than sin. 
When I'm sitting around thinking, should I, you know, being tempted by this or tempted by that, I think, well, maybe I should be serving the Lord. If I've got that kind of time on my hands to be dabbling in this sin, maybe I'm not serving the Lord. You know, a lot of times I think, oh, Lord, I've served you. It's, so, you know, it's such a tough week. You know, I did this and I did that. You know, I taught Sunday school or whatever it might be, and now I just need, I just need some me time. And then that me time is you, you keep opening that door a little bit more and a little bit more. If you've got time to fool with door number two, then you ought to be serving the Lord more and more and more because, man, I'm telling you, you do not want to be caught in that flood. People don't survive those kinds of floods very easily. I hate to quote Jim Morrison. And this is slightly out of the context he intended. But I'd say the time to hesitate is through. No time to wallow in the mire. I'm going to start using that in counseling and see if I get a reaction from people. But that's a good word. It's not, you know, obviously from the Lord because Jim Morrison was a nutcase. But how many of you know who Jim Morrison was? Raise your hand. The doors. The time to hesitate is through. Why hesitate in our decision to serve the Lord, to follow the Lord, to walk with the Lord, to be fully committed to the Lord? There's no time to wallow in that kind of mire and muck and mud and puke that sin brings. We need to just avoid that. I'll refrain from saying, come on, Jesus, light my fire. But it's, I was thinking about that. I actually had some fun with that. I think the Lord was you know, kind of in a comical mood this week with me. Because we do sing, holy fire, burn away my desire for anything that is not of you, but is of me. So maybe we can write, I'll have the worship team write a new song. (laughs) Time to hesitate is through, no time to wallow in the mire, holy fire, burn away. It's a great summary. And so this morning you've learned that you are a Christian bartender. You are a sober Christian bartender with emphasis on the sober. And what you're dispensing is really something that people don't want to drink when they understand what it is. It's the wrath of God against sin. But every unrepentant sinner will drink the full wrath of God unless they believe Jesus has drank it for them in their place, on their behalf, at the cross of Jesus Christ. If you need ammunition about what's coming, we give you all kinds of prophetic ideas every week. We're living in the last days. It's unmistakable. How long, you know, having said that, the rapture could come at any moment, the world could go on for another day, another decade, another hundred years. That's all in God's timing because one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day to the Lord. But when you see these things lining up, you know, I used to think back 30 years ago when I first got saved, even I thought, because I love prophecy, but even I thought some of these prophecy guys, they're, they're making some of this stuff up or they're bending things to fit. It, it, you know, they want it to be so true you know, that they're making things fit a little bit and, and there's a lot of sensationalism and weird stuff. That, there's still that today too, but sometimes you read a story and you think, really? They're microchipping people? You can be identified by a mark on your hand? 
or by a brain scan or a vein scan or a retinal scan. They're getting away from cash. They're moving to a cashless society. Europe is on the rise. Israel is back in the land. I mean, the convergence of Bible prophecies is inescapable in our generation. None of us has time to be drunk in a spiritual sense. We must remain sober. And so if you're dabbling with some sin, call me and I will find something for you to do. You don't have time to be doing that because you need to be about the business of furthering the kingdom of God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thanks for these things. What a rich vein of uh, exhortation this chapter in Jeremiah is. We've had some fun with it, Lord, mostly so that we could remember some of the main points. And they're profound, they're deep, they're meaningful. I know every one of my brothers and sisters in here, Lord, wants to be on fire for you, wants to be pouring out their heart to you and for you and ministering. I also know how easily we fall into temptation and sin, the weights that so easily beset us, Lord. And I pray that each of us in our own way would shut those doors, shut those windows, plug those cracks, whatever we want to say about it, and just be renewed and refreshed in serving you. If nothing else, Lord, when we're tempted to sin, that we would just say no and just start to pray, serve you through our prayers, praying constantly. May we see you affect our lives, our families, our society, our world. Until that day, your trumpet calls us home. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's